this all got changed about 20 years ago because there used to be a much smaller ticket office. I'm at the Stonehenge ticket barrier with the archaeologist Julian Richards. But there have been barriers here ever since this tunnel opened, which was in the late 1960s. And you could walk around the This is the site of one of the most intense forks in the road, love-wise, I have experienced. I was going out with this girl called Nikki. And it's, actually, it's a funny story how we met. Well, I'll tell you how we met. Yeah. I used to do this radio programme in Manchester, and she would phone. It was a late-night programme, and it was just like playing Misty for me. She'd phone. Oh, but not that scary. Well, a bit, yeah, a bit, in the end. She'd phone and say, um, um, and she had a very kind of sexy voice. You go, I'm here in my room, and I'm listening to you, and I'm drinking whiskey and listening. And she would do this from time to time, and then eventually she said she was having a party that Saturday. Would I like to come? So I've got to run away screaming. Well, what I decided to do was sit in the car outside her house and scrutinise the people walking into the party. And if they look like frightening freaks, I'd drive away. But if they look quite nice, I'd assume that she must be nice too. And I'd go in. So I watched these people going into the what party. They like? Well, they all look like frightening freaks. So I thought, well, I'm here anyway. <laughs> so I might as well go in. So I did. Yeah. And she became a girlfriend for a few months. And I thought I was in love with her. And then one day she said, let's go to an ashram in Devon. We'd have this kind of epic road journey from Manchester to Devon, to this ashram. I didn't really know what an ashram was. I'm still not entirely sure. But we got as far as Stonehenge and she said, let's go and see the stones. So I said, okay. And I'm not the most mystical of people. Although I appreciate Stonehenge, I don't feel like a great magnetic pull towards but it. But she was, was she? She was. That was the way she was there. Yeah, she was presenting herself in that respect. So we got here, where we're standing now, by the barriers. Yeah. And when she discovered that now you had to pay to get into Stonehenge and it wasn't free anymore. She got absolutely furious and she said to me, John, if you love me, you'll jump over these barriers with me. <laughs> right. And we'll just run into Stonehenge and jump over the wire. We'll just be amongst Stonehenge. Let's do it, John. Right. And well, <laughs> what was your reaction to that well, then? I mean, this I'm... woman is nuts. So I'm not going to do this. Or... Well, I was in this kind of dilemma because I was sort of torn. You were trying to weren't you? Yeah, I was sort of torn between, you know, my kind of feelings of love for her and the fact yeah. that she just suggested something incredibly stupid. That you knew was going to end up with you getting nicked, yeah. presumably. She jumped over the barriers and started running in up the tunnel up there, mm -hmm. past the artist's impression of how Stonehenge was built, yeah. yelling, Come on, John, <laughs> jump over the barriers! So I was standing here. And I thought, what am I going to do? You know, it's like a big moment. Do I do it or not? Anyway, what I decided to do in the end was I started to climb, but very, very slowly, in the full knowledge that a security guard would tell me to stop. And then I could say, well, I tried, which is what I did. And I got away with it. Really? What, yeah. what, so somebody came up and apprehended you and said, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? And I made this sort of little gesture of how dare you, you know, in her earshot, how dare you make people pay to this site, which is for the people. And so she was happy, security was happy, and I was happy. We so, all... so you never actually got to the stones then? No, no, we had to drive away. And did you still carry on going out with her? That's the question. <laughs> Not for long. She uh, went to France, where she worked in a restaurant, and then the last I heard was that she got impregnated by a gendarme, um, <laughs> decided not to tell him, and raised the child alone. Right. <laughs> That's the last I heard.
The fact of the matter is, I was asked to do something beyond the call of duty for love, and I didn't. This is a program about people who did. Here's the writer, Graham Linehan. My big thing was telling people that I'd never been in love, which was true. And my wife doesn't believe me, but until I met my wife, I hadn't been in love. I actually hit about 32 thinking, oh, it's all a lie. It's just songs and films, and it actually doesn't exist. Because I thought, by 32, I'm a, quite a warm, sensitive person, but I just didn't feel anything for anyone, really, you know? I had relationships, and they were always quite fun, and you know, but I didn't feel that thing that you're supposed to feel, you know, and I just gave up on it to some extent. And then after a while, I kind of went into every relationship looking for the exit as soon as I got in, and I hurt some people very badly that way. I, How? Um, oh, you know, I... I don't know. I did a terrible thing once to a woman where I, I just managed to trick myself into thinking that I had a crush on her. And even a crush for me was unusual. And then, you know, I broke up with her very, very soon after that. And then I saw her at a train platform and... Pushed her? No. <laughs> no. But she recognised me and I didn't recognise her. These things keep me awake. And I used to have a speech lined up that I used to <laughs> I used to tell some women if I was going out with them for a while I would have this speech ready and I did believe in it I only stopped believing in it when I met my wife what was the speech? well it's how it's better to have never existed than to live because if you live then you're going to suffer because if you exist you'll die you'll see your friends die you'll see your family die all these things will happen to you and they're terrible and wrenching and awful things that don't exist they're not jealous of people who exist because they don't exist <laughs> do you see what i mean it's a really important concept to grasp because otherwise i just sound like i'm saying something incredibly depressing i don't think i'm saying something pessimistic i think i'm saying possibly something nihilistic i remember i saw a comedian last night louis ck and he says the vast majority of people are dead <laughs> he says most people are dead it just seems to me you know and the people who are alive they're going to be alive for this tiny tiny time it's like he described it as a larval stage and the real thing that we blossom into is a corpse <laughs> and the corpse will take up the majority of our time People would say, why don't you just kill yourself? This is not the same. I'm not talking about being alive and then killing yourself. That's terrible. I'm talking about never existing. So I would say I am jealous of this empty space between us because there's nothing there. Was this the first date? conversation. <laughs> no, this would be a few weeks in. Okay. A few months in. And this would be just after, say, the woman mentioned, oh, what a lovely baby. I'd say, yes. You know, I, <laughs> I, would, I would tell this story, you know. So, Gosh, um, what would the look on oh, her face be? Oh, God, you could see the... Concern? Yes. So would you say this to them as a preamble to, and that's why I don't want to go out with you anymore? No, I think the plan was that it would sort of naturally happen after that. That was the plan, I'm afraid. So did you ever say that to your current wife? Nope, nope, Never I didn't, no. No, I kept all that stuff hidden from her. So what's the opposite to that? Now you are in love, how far will you go for it? 
Well, you know, I was quite astonished at how romantic I got in the first flush, and I remember thinking about how can I make a birthday special, and I hired a string quartet to play in her flat once and a cook to make dinner and stuff like that. Did you? Yeah. How, how did she respond to the string quartet? Oh, you know, she liked it. She was happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know. She didn't think too many people in the flat. It was one of those things that's probably the best moment is the moment of discovery and everything after that is a bit of a letdown because you're just constantly going, oh, that was great, <laughs> to the string quartet, oh, that was fantastic, well done, then eating and trying to have a romantic conversation when there's, there's like five people with the cook as well, you know, just really near you at all times. With the string quartet, you know, giving each other kind of awkward glances. No, 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 they loved it, they were all girls, so they thought it was romantic too. It was really nice, actually. And now um, I would think I'd better pop into Borders. <laughs> on the way home it's terrible isn't it and I don't know why it does that it just settles into a kind of comfy thing Graham Linehan I'm at a wedding reception in Glasgow the best man is giving a speech about how when the groom first met his bride he was incredibly drunk but it didn't matter because she was equally drunk and they bonded over a mutual love of wine and have in short been drunk ever since. The guests laugh and applaud. It sounds like they've got drinking problems, I think. Then the bride makes a speech about the many times she's been drunk. I frown. They should see someone about it, I think. At the disco, I leave my wife Elaine talking with a man we've known for a few months and I've decided I don't like. After a few minutes, Elaine finds me and says, he came on to me. What? I say. I stare at the man through the crowd. What will I do? How will I defend my wife's honour? Find out later in the programme. In Denver, Colorado, Doug and Annie Brown recently came to the same realisation that Graham Linehan came to, that after 14 years together, things can get just too comfortable. Doug and Annie thought that comfort was far worse than love and passion. It had faded, you know, it lost some of its luster over time. Right. The back seat yeah. after the careers started to pump up and then of course the children came on the scene. Doug and Annie realized that they just weren't having as much sex as they used to. It's obviously a lot of fun and we just sort of thought, you know, why is this fun and free thing <laughs> fading? And it had faded to what? We sort of presumed it was once a week, which meant it was Saturday night, but then we sort of realized, well, usually one week a month for whatever reason would go away. So we were, it was like three times a month, roughly. And we would read these books and it would say like the average American couple has sex twice to three times a week, even if they've been married 10 years. And I started to feel really bad about ourselves. But the more we started to talk about it, we realized that, no, it is pretty much the norm where we were. It was Annie's idea. Why not do something incredible? Why not have sex every night for the next hundred nights? Our rule was... By midnight, every day, we had to have intercourse. That so, was, have about yeah. 100 that, days. That, it ended up being 101, yes. Yeah. 
Doug's yes. clever co-worker suggested that we had to do it the 101st day for good luck. I wasn't privy to this new rule until the 101st day. Yeah. And I had other plans, so I, I was... I forgot to tell her. <laughs> I wasn't pleased. And I read something that you wrote. You said, I can't believe we'd never before had end-of-the-bed sex. What is that? Well, that was just, we, you know, we... Is that when you have sex at the end of the bed? Yeah, literally, (laughs) literally at the end of the bed. But yeah, it wasn't a very complicated, wild thing, but nevertheless, we had never discovered end of the bed sex. Right. What other sorts of sex did you have? We had a lot of positions we tried, but we didn't really go crazy. It wasn't like I was dressing up like Goldilocks and Annie was had a whip or some kind of thing. <laughs> it was, God, it, it, no. was, it was pretty tame, actually. The but. wildest thing we did was have it outside on a mountain after a hike. Wow. That was very nice. Yeah, that Chilly, was nice. though, right? Well, it was April. It, it, it had warmed up. It wasn't too bad. It wasn't bad. Okay. And is there anything you look back on with regret about those 101 days? No. I mean, there were definitely difficult days. And one period, I was in the hospital for half of, well, most of the day. And then and then they had sex was, at night. They had sex at night. <laughs> um, what did you have? I woke up at like sort of five in the morning and the room was spinning. I mean, it was like some mad carnival ride. I crawled to the bathroom and commenced vomiting and finally i got to the emergency room in the hospital and the doctor said i had this thing called vertigo and whilst you were vomiting were you shouting to annie by the way we're still having sex tonight <laughs> no i was shouting to him really you said even with the vomit we're still gonna have sex yeah well uh, you know I, 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 yeah, I did clean up after we got home but it was certainly not a winning night of erotic no. adventures. No. Did, did it give you cause to wonder why you were doing this? I mean, it, yeah. it, were you not thinking, Douglas, you're vomiting and Annie's <laughs> shouting, we're having sex tonight. <laughs> did a part of you not think, how has my life ended up well, this way? Well, at that point, it was kind of late in the adventure. I forget, maybe day 80 or something. And yeah. there was no way at that point, you know, that I was, I really wanted to do it. Did you never have, Douglas, sperm deficiency issues? <laughs> like there just wasn't any sperm left? No, that never did happen. Isn't it like a goldfish that grows to fit its bowl? I mean, I'm no biologist, but I just wonder. No, I didn't have any deficiency, I think. Knowing that you were going to write a book about it, after sex, did you just immediately rush into the other room and make notes about what had just happened? Yes. Yes, really? I, I did. After, after yeah, every well, I, sex. Yeah, and Annie did the same thing. We'd bring our laptops or our paper or whatever into bed and maybe for half an hour just take notes. Mostly it was, you know, I found that Doug's entries were very detailed about the actual sex itself. And mine were more about, oh, my God, the children were driving me crazy. My boss was being just a jerk today. And then I'd look over and... Doug would be writing erotica. (laughs) (laughs) Was it more fun for one of you than the other? Did one of you dislike the 101 Days more? If I had to guess, I would say I enjoyed it more. Yeah, I think I had more to do. Yeah. (laughs) In terms of, like, doing other... Well, Annie has more to do... She had more going on in her head. There's not much multitasking for me. I would come home and, ah, time for sex. 
there's always a running list in my head, and there's not one in Doug. So I think that it was harder. And after the 101 days, have you not had sex since? Uh, yes. Yes, we did take time off. How long off did you have? Well, Annie had to go on a trip, actually, on day 102. She fled Colorado and went to Philadelphia for a total of a month before we did it again. Gosh. And do you ever look back nostalgically? Do you ever say to each other, do you remember that sex we had on day 23? I don't look necessarily back at individual days, although there's a couple, like the mountain sex on top of a mountain. It's almost like looking back at a wonderful sabbatical or some castle you're renting on a beach, and you were there for 101 days. I mean, well, obviously it wasn't that, but it is the kind of thing you look back and think, geez, that was a lot of fun every night. And has it made your relationship better? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's just a greater ease of communication, not only about sex, but just in general, and there's... A real understanding that we have to keep sex as a focus in our life because if we don't, we become roommates and you can be a roommate with anybody. Doug and Annie Brown, their book, Just Do It, anatomizes their 101 night experiment in all the detail you might want. And so here I am, at a wedding reception in Glasgow, and my wife Elaine says that a friend who I don't like has just come onto her. He grabbed hold of my hand and made a sexual noise, she says. What kind of noise? I ask. Ugh, she says, clearly upset. Ugh, I say. Worse, she says. How dare he attempt to cuckold another man? But it is no surprise. Lovelorn people will go to extraordinary lengths. Take former celebrity journalist Jane Busman. I'd been a celebrity journalist for so many years, I was about to kill myself. I would have washed Africa's dishes at this point. I was so desperate to do something that wasn't evil. I really, really wanted to work for Doctors Without Borders, but there was... Well, because you thought that journalism was I thought evil. journalism was just worse than prostitution, because prostitutes, at least at some point, someone pretends to like them. I really did want to work for Doctors Without Borders or Oxfam or anything. None of them even... Only one person got back to me, and that was Save the Children, asking what skills I had. I told them. I never heard from them again. Jane had met and fallen in love with a man who told her he was on his way to do good in Uganda. Filled with love and self-loathing, she decided to follow him. He's one of the world's most respected peacemakers who was trying to end the war in Uganda. His credits were amazing. He worked for Clinton. He was very focused on you know, trying to catch the most evil man in the world. But it occurred to me that he was also extremely attractive. And I decided that I could somehow end up in a safari lodge with him explaining to me how he got this attractive while saving the world. Unfortunately, when she reached Uganda, the man she'd fallen for wasn't there. He'd moved on to do good in another African country. And so Jane was stuck in Uganda, lovelorn and penniless. Desperate, she asked the Sunday Times to commission her to interview the local feared warlord, Joseph Kony. I ended up in a Ugandan war zone. I'd gone looking for basically fun and good times, largely romance. 
I was kidding myself I was going to be a hotshot war correspondent. I was trying to track down the most evil man in the world, Joseph Coney, the warlord. He kidnaps kids. His army is under four foot tall. What does he do with the kids? He trains them to work as child soldiers and sex slaves, mainly at gunpoint. That's um, about as bad as it gets. I was talking to the kids that had escaped, and I was saying, so, you know, what does he do in his spare time? Say, oh, he watches BBC. Why? To see if he's on. I said, of course, yes. What else does he watch? Oh, films. What films? Oh, uh, Big Man. What's his name? Rambo. Bang into um, Sylvester Stallone movies. I said, really? Yes. He make all the small soldiers, small soldiers, go into the desert. He say, you see this man, see this man, you do what he does, copy this man. Is there anyone else? He goes, yeah, Chuck Norris, missing in action too. <laughs> The head of the army in that area I was in was a guy called Colonel Temer. And he, to me, was far more sinister than Coney because it was his job to catch Coney and he wasn't doing it. He was prepared to let kids be kidnapped, etc., etc. So I was desperate to get an interview with him. He wouldn't talk to me. He's this giant man. First time I saw him, I said, get out the truck. His truck didn't even have a number plate. It had gold stars, this man. He walks out and I was terrified of him and he wouldn't talk to me. No, I'm too busy. No, no. For like weeks. And finally on the last day, I was in a terrible situation I just cracked and I just phoned him and just you've got to talk to me Kalik. you want to talk to me stop bothering me then you meet me tomorrow morning I've got no cell reception I'm literally texting my sister to say you know Kate if I'm found dead it was not Joseph Coney the most evil man in the world the rebel leader it was Colonel Charles Atemer <laughs> P.S. don't tell mum um <laughs> We ended up outside this yellow concrete building, I'll never forget, and he's looking at me like, this is it, he's going to kill me, which of course he wasn't. But I defused the situation by asking him the kind of questions I would ask people normally interview, like Britney Spears, which is, you, you, you're an amazing shape. What's your secret? And he just totally relaxed and started singing about how much exercise he did, you know, and how he got this great figure. He's a pretty big frankly large, fat gentleman. You see this, I like to have a very heavy lunch. I swim every day. And I said, you know, well, you look terrific. Are you a social man? Do you come to London? He goes, yes, sir. I go to Marks and Spencer's Oxford Street. I mean, this is a man wanted by Amnesty and Human Rights Watch for, you know, his unit of gang rapes and torture their way through their suspects. I say, Marks and Spencer's Oxford Street. I said, I bet they've got no idea. Wasn't a big, important colonel is shopping there. He said, they do when I pay 500 pounds for their casual clothes. Anyway, I prefer the pants next. <laughs> Eventually, the man she'd fallen for, the man she'd gone to Africa for, turned up. He finally turned up <laughs> and came to rescue me, at which point things had got so out of control <laughs> the rest of the story that it was barely a blip. <laughs> Jane Busman. And so I'm at a wedding reception in Glasgow, wondering how to deal with a man I don't like who's just come on to my wife. How to defend the sacrament of our marriage. Should I throw a glass of wine in his face? Should I wrestle him to the floor? And then it hits me. I can be legitimately standoffish, I think. I can be as distant and surly as I like, and nobody can criticise me for it. People will mistake my misanthropy for chivalry. I scan the room until I find him. Then I walk over and stand quite close to him, looking in the other direction. Hi, John, he says. I say nothing. How are you, he says. I say nothing. And then I walk into the crowd. That was brilliant, I think. I think this programme has been a bit depressing. It's been about how love fades as we age and how passion dies. 
and so I want to end it with something hopeful. I want to take you back to your early twenties, to all our early twenties, when the possibility of love was exciting and anything could happen. Here's the comedian, Josie Long. I was really like desperate to find someone and be in love with them. I had this vibrating watch that all comedians have is a special vibrating watch and it's very cheap, but it's the only watch you can find that vibrates with a stopwatch, apart from like really specialist ones for the deaf, but they're really pricey, so no one would have them. So for when you're 10 minutes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you have it on, right? And um, part of it broke, so it came away from the strap. And I found some blue electrical tape backstage and I wound up the watch around it. I looked down at it, I thought it was really beautiful. And I kind of thought, right, if a boy sees this and loves it, I will know. Like, they'll see it and I'll see that they've seen it and we will know and that'll be it. That'll be my streamlined, fast-track way of finding love. Of knowing that the person would be perfect for you. Yeah, and I thought it suggested all these things about me, like being homemade and DIY and kind of punky and then that person would see me and think alan bennett jarvis cocker something i can't remember what i used to think i had a big specific list that he would see it and i would know and all my friends hated it and all my friends were like why don't you just buy a new watch what you, it's not even an expensive watch why don't you just buy a new watch do your friends actually talk like that my friends from kent do <laughs> my sister does my sister be like why don't you buy a watch what is wrong with you and nobody commented on it like the best i got was like what's wrong with your watch I was all but ready to give up, like totally. And I was at a party and a guy came up to me and the first thing he says is, oh, I really like your watch. And I'm like, oh my God, right? And then he pulls up his sleeve and under his sleeve, he has the exact same watch mended with white surgical tape, like all over it, white surgical tape, the same watch. And I'm practically married to him already. Like in my head, that is it. it is off and he's a good looking guy and he's interesting and we sit down and we're talking and we're getting on really really well and he's like an artist and he lives in like an artist commune warehouse thing which when i was 22 was like the most glamorous thing you can imagine real life is just it's really cold and you have to have one of the color gas heaters and then if your leg's broken and you've got a cast on you have to sit too close to the color gas heater and your cast actually goes on fire <laughs> oh no well that's the thing that happened to me in the one time I was in that situation. You see, and he and I sat and we chatted, and it was great. And then after about half an hour of this conversation, he starts saying, so you know how the pound sign, the sign for the pound, that's just like an infinity sign, isn't it? That's just like an infinity sign. And I was thinking, no, it's not, but you know, he's just quirk. This is just one of his quirks. Like all couples have little quirks. <laughs> so I was like, fine, fine, fine. So I was kind of like, well, I don't really know if I agree with him. That. And then he starts saying, See, uh, and the Jews. <laughs> it wasn't that, thank God it wasn't that bad. Although I have a friend who had a one night stand with a guy and the next morning he went, well, I voted BNP. She went, get out of my house. <laughs> and then he goes, um, so the thing is, there's a network of underwater rivers, right? Not not underground rivers that might make sense or exist. Underwater rivers. And I thought, no, I'm sorry. I was an idiot. I was wrong. My friends... Did you, know. you ask how, how you can differentiate between... Exactly. It's just a river. It's the same river. My friend Helen, when I told her about the watch, she'd just be like, this is not a good way of finding a perspective life partner. You will find nutters. So That's now fine. I just go for muscles. That's what I go for. Forget the watch.